0: Has anyone ever had a strange dream before? Yes, I'm sure all of us have had strange dreams. This chapter is all about a strange dream that Daniel has in chapter 7. Well, I've had a strange dream before. One of the strangest dreams that I ever had was I dreamt that I ate a four-pound marshmallow. And the worst part about it is when I woke up, my pillow was gone. Ah, There's a dad joke for you all, right? Yeah, I know. Some people are like, okay, just pulled one of those dumb dads. Yes. No, that was actually one of the first jokes I ever told my parents. Well, this chapter is all about a strange dream that Daniel has. And many scholars would say, many people would say that Daniel chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters that we have in the Old Testament. Why? Because Daniel chapter 7 gives us one of the first clear pictures of, of what the Messiah looks like and what the Messiah will do when he comes. The people of God have been waiting for years and years. And Daniel chapter 7 gives this really clear picture of this image or this character that calls himself, that is called the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And it's the centerpiece of Old Testament revelation concerning the Messiah. We're going to talk a little bit about the Messiah and what that means in a little bit. But Daniel chapter 7 is considered to be apocalyptic literature. Now before I go any further, let me preface the rest of this message by saying um, that this teaching this morning will probably probably be more uh, unpacking the text together. And the last little bit of it will be some application, but for the most part, we're probably going to do a little bit more teaching this morning than we've done in the past. So if you're joining us, bear with us as we make our way through this thick piece of text. But Daniel chapter 7 is considered to be apocalyptic literature, and much of the book of Revelation is adapted from the the last few chapters of Daniel. And... um, when the word revelation in the Greek is the, is the Greek word apocalypsis, and it's where we get the English word apocalypse. Now, what comes to mind when you think of the apocalypse? The end of the world, right? It's, it's the chaos. It's the, it's the destruction. Maybe you think of movies like uh, Deep Impact or Apocalypse Now, or maybe the new movie that just came out, Greenland. It's kind of the end of the world. It's these catastrophic world-ending events. However... The Greek word apocalypsis doesn't refer at all to the end of the world. It doesn't mean anything uh, regarding the end of the world. Rather, the Greek word apocalypsis means to reveal the things of God. It means to reveal. And it's when God pulls back the curtain and shows humanity what is happening in heaven. He's revealing the things of heaven to people. So Daniel's dream is an apocalypse. God is apocalypsing himself to Daniel. And he apocalypses himself to King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. Do you remember the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had? If you didn't uh, hear our second week of this series, uh, 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 King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this statue with four medals, and God is revealing what is to come, that his kingdom will end, and there will be a kingdom that will be established forever. He apocalypses himself to King Nebuchadnezzar. But here's, here's the interesting thing. To King Nebuchadnezzar, when this apocalypse happens to king nebuchadnezzar when this revelation of his authority ending is happening to king Neb- nebuchadnezzar it really is the end of his world it's the for those who are not in god When he reveals what he is doing behind the scenes, if you are not in sync with the things of God, if you are not aligning your life with the things of God, when he reveals what he's doing, it means the end of your life, the end of of your way of doing things, your preferences, the things that you want to do, the things of your flesh, it's coming to an end, right? But for the people of God, when he reveals himself to his people, it is the beginning of a new creation. It's the beginning of a new thing, and God is showing, he's giving his people hope of something to expect that's coming. And so when God reveals himself, when he apocalypses himself to his people, it's a message of hope. But when he apocalypses himself to those who are not close to God, it is kind of a world-ending event for them. They have to realize that God is doing something that's going to end their kingdom, that's going to end their preferences and their fleshly desires, it's going to come to an end. Now, whenever we read scripture, like this chapter, that's heavily steeped in symbolism, because this chapter is, is packed with images and beasts and, and kings and kingdoms, it's just packed with symbolism. Whenever we read a text like this, we have to approach it with two things. The first thing we have to approach it with is with respect. That you and I, although we can, we can do our best, and in fact, that's what it means to approach it with respect, is that we, we do our responsibility by trying to place ourselves in the shoes of those that this book was written for, the original audience, and trying to figure out the context surrounding this chapter. We have to, ha- we have to approach this chapter with, with responsibility. We can't jump to conclusions. We can't jump to what we think this automatically means, but we have to do our due diligence, and try to place ourselves in the author's shoes. What was he trying to communicate? The second thing we have to do when we approach a passage like this is we have to approach it with humility, that we're not the experts, that uh, we, we want the Holy Spirit to partner with us and reveal to us the meaning of this text, but we also have to open up our minds and consider the possibilities of other options, and we have to approach texts like this with humility, knowing that we don't have everything figured out on this side of heaven. Amen? Amen? Respect and humility, it's what we're going to give this chapter. And before we read it, I want you to take note of Daniel chapter 2. Because, like I said when I talked about Jan- Daniel chapter 2, chapters 2 and chapter 7 are linked together. They're actually talking about some of the same subject material. Now, there's some differences in chapter 7, but we know in chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of these four different metals of a head of gold the chest and arms of iron, or excuse me of silver uh, a, a stomach of of bronze and and feet or excuse me legs of bronze and feet of clay and iron with 10 toes and remember all of the numbers that that you read in chapter 2 and relate it to what we read in chapter 7 because these two chapters are linked and they serve as, um, as a link between Daniel's experiences in life and his prophetic dreams and visions. Are you still with me? Yeah. Okay, here we go. We're going to read Daniel chapter 7. And I, I tried to figure out a way to break this chapter up so we don't have to read the whole thing together. But there's really no way to do it. It is, it is you got to read it from front to, front to back, from beginning to end. So we're going to read Daniel chapter 7 together this morning. Can we do that? Here we go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, so notice that this dream happens before uh, the right handwriting on the wall. When Belshazzar, this happens before the lion's den, this happens before the writing on the wall. The first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind and he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had wings like an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. Does this sound at all familiar to to a story that we read earlier in chapter in Daniel about King Nebuchadnezzar? His mind is restored. Think, think, of, think of some of the similarities that we read earlier in the book of Daniel. It all has to be taken into account as we read this. "'And there before me,' chapter, excuse me, verse 5, "'was the second beast, which looked like a bear. "'It was raised up on one of its sides, "'and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. "'It was told, "'Get up, eat your fill of flesh.'" While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. This is a crazy dream. As I looked, verse 9, Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten, thousands stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into a blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. Verse thirteen. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into the presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Does that phrase sound familiar? That, is, that has been a phrase that has, ha- that has come up through the book of Daniel multiple times. Verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there. So Daniel, in his vision, approaches an angel or a messenger of God that is standing there in his dream. He approaches this, this being and asks him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are the four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will, be, will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, before which all three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Verse 21, as I watched, are you still with me, everybody? All right, here we go. As I watched this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the ancient of days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the most high and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The 10 horns are 10 kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people, and try to change the set times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away from uh, and, and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Here it is again. And all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. What a crazy dream Daniel is having. He's got this vision of these four beasts and these four earthly kingdoms, and and, and much like the, the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has, he has this vision of four metals and four kingdoms that Daniel tells him about. But here's the big question. When we read this, this chapter, one of the big questions that comes up out of this chapter is, are these events referring to something that happened in our past? Or are these events something that will take place in the future, in our future? And here's what I think the answer is. This is my opinion. This is what I think the Bible is trying to tell us. I think the answer is yes to both because remember remember that the book of daniel was written as a book of hope for all generations of god's people and this book brought hope to those who were being persecuted uh, in the days of jesus after it, by rome and it brings hope to people even now today so daniel is written for a bu- if you're joining us in this series we've been talking throughout the series called exiles about what to do in the waiting that the people of god uh, are given instruction by Daniel how to live a life in the midst of a Babylon culture that, that, in, in which we can thrive, in which we can pursue God and follow Him justly and honor our authority, but also stay separate from the world and stay separate from culture. And so this book is giving uh, the people, the original audience that Daniel is writing to, it's giving them hope, it's giving them instruction, but it's also giving us hope. And it's also giving us instruction. And so this this, cha- this book is, is timeless. This chapter is timeless. Well, I want to take some time to break down some of the symbols that we see, some of these beasts, and some of the figures that we see in this chapter. And we're going to start with the easy ones. The first uh, image that I want to talk about is we see this character, this image called the Ancient of Days. And we know... Uh, many scholars agree, and we know through sc- studying Scripture and all the other references to the Ancient of Days, that the Ancient of Days is the one true God. This is the Creator Himself. He is the righteous judge. He is the one who, in the end, will ultimately slay the beast and put it to death forever. The Ancient of Days is the one true God. That's an easy one. Well, we have another image that comes up, and it's, he's referred to as the Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? Luckily for you and I, we have the hindsight of, of reading the Gospels, and we know the story of Jesus. And people would often refer to Jesus as the Christ. They would refer to him as the Christ, but Jesus' favorite title for himself— was the Son of Man. He referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title, and he took it straight out of Daniel chapter 7. He was referring to himself as the Son of Man because of this chapter. And we see that the Son of Man is coming uh, on the clouds. And this is reference to when Jesus ascends into heaven after his, his resurrection, but also how Revelation talks about he will come back in the same way which he left, that he will return again on the clouds. Uh, it says that this son of man will be given an everlasting dominion over all. Now let's talk about this this Messiah, what this Messiah figure. See, the original readers of Daniel would see this son of man as as, as an exciting insight into what the Messiah is supposed to look like. They've been waiting for years and years, and, and it started all in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sins in the garden, and God tells Eve that your offspring will crush the serpent's head, right? He, he tells Eve that, that you're, you're going to have pain in childbirth. He gives a punishment to Adam, and he tells Eve that your offspring will crush the serpent's head, but he will wound your heel. And then we can fast forward to Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, where God promises Abraham that all the people of the earth will be blessed through his lineage, will be blessed through his family and then we can fast forward some more to where god makes a promise to king david and says that the messiah will come from your line that that there will come a time where somebody from your family will sit on a throne and his throne will be established forever it will never be destroyed it will never go away so for the for the jews in the jews mind the messiah is this serpent crushing figure that comes both from Abraham's line and from David's family. And that's, that's really, uh, it's, it's a really broad picture. But when they look and when they read this chapter, they suddenly see this clear picture that he's seated. It's a figure. He's seated uh, in the heavens with the ancient of days in his presence. He's given all authority that he is God himself. And so it's this really clear picture of the Messiah. The Son of Man is referring to Jesus. So let's get into these, these beasts. We're, is everybody still with me? Are we tracking? Okay, we're going to get into the, the rest of these beasts, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how this applies to our life and what we're supposed to do from here. Well, the first beast that we see is this winged lion. It's a lion that also looks kind of like an eagle. It's got the wings of an eagle. And there are many passages... All throughout Scripture and Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, that refer to King Nebuchadnezzar both as a lion and as an eagle. And so, much like the, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has in chapter 2, where Daniel says, This head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar, is the kingdom of Babylon. The next piece of that statue in chapter 2 is the chest of silver. It refers to Persia that conquered Babylon. And then the thighs of bronze refers to Greece that conquered Persia. And then the feet of clay and iron is the kingdom of Rome. And it conquered Greece. And much like that pattern, we see the same pattern in this chapter. That this lion is Nebuchadnezzar. It's the kingdom of Babylon. And uh, Babylon, they they would use lions all the time to represent themselves. There were statues with with winged lions all over Babylon, and the famous Ishtar Gate was decorated with lions, so it was very appropriate in this dream, uh, for for Babylon to be depicted with a lion and an eagle. This next this next beast that we see here is this bear. With three ribs in his mouth. Now, this bear represents the next kingdom that conquered uh, Babylon. It's the kingdom of Persia. And these three ribs that the bear has in its mouth, most, most scholars would agree that it represents the three uh, main conquests of Persia because Persia had conquered Babylon, they conquered Lydia, and they conquered Egypt. And so these ribs in the bear's mouth represent the conquests of Persia. The next, uh, the next beast that we see is a leopard with four wings— and uh, many people agree, many scholars agree that this would refer to Greece. And the four wings represent the great speed of Alexander's conquest. And the four heads of this leopard represent the four principal sections of the empire. There was Greece, Macedonia, Thrace, and Asia Minor. And so um, it was appropriate to to depict Greece with a, a, a leopard with four heads and four wings. And then we get to this fourth and final beast this great and terrifying beast who's got 10 horns uh much like the the statue in chapter 2 the the feet of clay and and iron it it makes mention of the 10 toes that the statue had and so once again it's referring to the number 10 again and it most likely represents the 10 parts of rome's kingdom rome had 10 main divisions and so these this number 10 represents the kingdom of rome And the beast here is depicted as more terrible and more terrifying because of the duration and the tenacity of Rome's uh, conquest or, or Rome's longevity that they had on the earth. That they endured, the kingdom of Rome endured for a lot longer than all the other kingdoms, but it also persecuted God's people much more greatly than the previous kingdoms. And so this beast... With iron teeth and ten horns, it's terrifying. Represents the, the tenacity and, the, a, a, and what Rome did to God's people. But then, so we, we have these four beasts, and we know by, by studying scripture and comparing this chapter with, with whatever else is going on in Daniel 2, a, a, in the book of Daniel, that these are four actual kingdoms that, that lived on the earth. They were four actual kingdoms. But then there's this image of a little horn. And this horn doesn't really fit any of the views or any of these descriptions of any kingdom at the time or any leader at the time. But we see that this horn is is an actual human figure. It represents an actual human figure or a world ruler who is going to do a couple things. He will persecute the saints of the Most High, he will intend to change times and laws. And we know that this ruler or person will speak against the people of the Most High and will speak against God himself. Now, some people think that this horn, this individual, was the person, it was, it was the uh, Syrian king Antiochus. Antiochus lived in 160 BC, and he killed many faithful Jews in that time, and and in Jerusalem, and he set up idols in the temples in Jerusalem. So many people believe that maybe this figure, this little horn, refers to Antiochus, who came on the scene in 160 BC. Others think that this little horn Was uh, represents Rome and represents uh, what Rome did to the Jews in that time. And it's the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and, and uh, of the temple in AD 70. But Still, others believe that maybe this figure is not somebody from our past. Maybe this figure is somebody who will come in the future, who will persecute the saints, who will intend to change times and laws, and who will speak out against the Most High God. But see, the problem here is with all three of these views, with Antiochus, with Rome, with a future ruler, the numbers and the symbols in this chapter, they don't perfectly fit. And as we continue to read the book of Daniel... Uh, it doesn't 100% fit together, so it opens up this possibility that maybe it's referring to all of them, like we discussed at the beginning of this this message, that maybe it's referring to all of them, that the book of Daniel is written to give hope to all generations of God's people. It did in the days of Antiochus, it did in the days of Rome, and it will in the future days. It, it is giving us hope, and it is giving us instructions today. In fact, Jesus Many people use this book throughout history. It's not just set in time. Jesus used the visions of Daniel to describe Jerusalem's leaders. And when John wrote the book of Revelation, he adapted Daniel's visions and dreams uh, to apply to Rome of his day and to all future generations. And so there's a possibility that this chapter is referring to events that happened in our past, but also events that will happen in our future. And the message is to stay vigilant and and to continue to receive instruction and to continue to be filled up with hope in the midst of a culture that is walking away from God in the midst of a world that is wandering away from God that we can be people that thrive in a in a culture in a pagan culture we can thrive following Jesus and still be separate from the world and still choose the things of God but to be separate from the world Okay is everybody okay Okay here we go we, We're going to go into, what can we take away from this chapter? This is an intense chapter, lots of images and symbols. Why is this chapter so important? See, if you only apply this chapter to future events that could be happening. Maybe you've read, read this chapter before and you automatically just applied it to oh this is talking about the end times. This is the end of the world right here. This is the final battle between God and Satan. If it, if you only apply this chapter to future events, events then this chapter may be a little bit frightening to you. Maybe you've read this and it and it's a little frightening. There's beasts rising from the sea. God's people are persecuted. There's a heavenly battle between the ancient of days and the great and terrifying beast. And if this chapter is misinterpreted, then it may seem like a warning about future trouble. Like, get ready. It's coming. Brace yourself. When this chapter is misinterpreted, it it has the tendency to fill somebody who, who hasn't done their work. It has a tendency to fill them with a little bit of fear. But if you approach this chapter with the eyes of heaven and with the eyes of victory, then this chapter fills God's people with hope. And there's There's a victory and God, God has the authority. He's all sovereign. His dominion, his kingdom will last forever. We don't want to miss these greater truths that we find in this chapter. Here are four things, four truths that we find in Daniel chapter 7 that we can't miss when we read this. The first thing is number one, I belong to God's kingdom first. I belong to God's kingdom first. Daniel was an exile. He was a Jew that was taken from his homeland and brought into Babylon. And what he understood was that he didn't belong to Babylon or Persia. He didn't even belong to Israel first, even though he was an Israelite. He belonged to a heavenly kingdom that has God seated on the throne. The Ancient of Days, the Creator of the World, the the Righteous Judge, the Loving Father. He is seated on the throne. You belong to that kingdom first. If you follow Jesus, you belong to God's kingdom before you belong to the American kingdom, before you belong to the Republican kingdom, before you belong to the Democrat kingdom, before you belong to any personal kingdom. You belong to God's kingdom first. You are a citizen of heaven first, and your life should act out of that, should reflect that truth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And if we skip down to verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. See, Peter here is saying that you are foreigners. You are exiles in this world. You don't belong to this world first. And when we wrap ourselves up... ...and what our country is doing. It's good to pray for our country. It's good to pray for our leaders. In fact, we're supposed to pray for our leaders. We're supposed to plead to God for our country. But if you place yourself in the American kingdom first... ...or wherever you come from... ...if you place yourself in that kingdom first... ...then you will live out of that kingdom. You will live with the anxiety and the fear... ...and all the things that are happening in that kingdom... ...but you belong to God's kingdom first. It's good to want to see America succeed... We should pray for our country, pray for our leaders, but we need to understand that our citizenship is first in God's kingdom. Some, I, I know people who compare America to Israel, and they believe that Uh, America is God's country that was founded on godly principles, and yet other people would say uh, America is Babylon. They are walking away from the Lord. They are doing the things that are against God, and so they they see America both as Israel and both as Babylon, uh, and they believe that this this, this country is on a highway headed for destruction. But regardless of what you believe about America and how our country lives and passes its laws, the truth is that God's kingdom doesn't operate like any earthly government or kingdom. And we need to be sensitive to the desires of our king before we consider the, the rulers of our world, the, the, the ones in authority in our world. We're supposed to respect those authorities. We're supposed to obey those authorities. But we need to be more sensitive to the, to the desires of our heavenly king, the one who is really in charge, the one whose throne will be established forever forever whose dominion will never fade away. You belong to God's kingdom first. Second thing, second truth, is that God's people will experience persecution. We need to understand this. We need to expect this. The Bible is very clear about this. God's people will suffer on some level. Perhaps not you personally. I have not experienced much much persecution in my life, thank God. Yes, I've experienced pressure. I've experienced pressure in my life to, uh, when, I, when I'm standing up for the things of God. Maybe you've, ex- you've experienced this too. You, ex- you feel pressure from those around you. But many of us have not experienced persecution, and I'm grateful to live somewhere that allows me to practice my faith in Jesus. I'm grateful for that. But here's the reality, that there are brothers and sisters across the world who are experiencing terrible persecution And we need to pray for those brothers and sisters. In China, there are churches closed and demolished. There are house churches raided. Pastors are handcuffed mid-service. Christians are arrested, interrogated, imprisoned. There are crosses removed from church buildings. In fact, according to BBC, in 2019, 250 Christians were killed and 500 were injured in Sri Lanka alone on Easter Sunday. In 2019, on Easter Sunday, in Sri Lanka alone, there were 250 Christians killed and 500 injured. There is persecution happening all over our world. And you and I, we have the benefit of living in a country that allows us to practice our faith, that, yeah, may ask us to wear masks when we come into a building, but personally, I don't feel religiously persecuted by that, okay? That's pressure, it's not persecution. We have brothers and sisters all over the world who are experiencing very real persecution, and we need to pray for them. In fact, uh, I'm going to throw this out there. You can pray for, the, for, for our, our brothers and sisters all over the world. And you can financially support them if you go to persecution.com. It's the Voice of the Martyrs. And you can give to Voice of the Martyrs to support our brothers and sisters all over the world whose churches are being burnt to the ground, who are being arrested, uh, and, and are experiencing persecution of all sorts. But the reality is that God promises Persecution. Jesus promised trouble. If you follow me, you will experience trouble. Now, here's the cool thing, though. Yeah, we're going to experience persecution, but Jesus says, I will be with you. I will be with you through it all. Just like he was with Daniel in the lion's den, just like he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Jesus promises that he will be with you. And you can take hope. You can take authority. Now, now, this is this is... I'm getting to a victory part, okay? I don't want us to get steeped into this mindset of, oh, persecution's coming. I need to hide and run for the hills and get ready for a battle because I'm gonna get persecuted. No, we're supposed to be prepared for it, but we do it from a place of victory. And we're gonna get to that. The third thing here, third truth, is I have shared authority with Jesus. I have shared authority with Jesus. In verse 27 of the chapter that we just read, it says, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the most high. Turn to the person next to you and say, "Hey, that's you." And then say, "No, that's me." It will be handed over to you. You have the authority. This is a picture of God restoring what he did in Genesis chapter 128. He says to Adam and Eve when he creates them, he, gave, he, he tells them to, to take dominion over the earth and subdue it and multiply. He tells them to take dominion over all creation and multiply the earth, subdue it, control, be in charge. You have authority. God gave mankind the authority in the beginning, in the garden. He gave Adam and Eve the authority to subdue the earth, to conquer it. With his power, of course, and with his intentions and his desire. We know that after Jesus was resurrected, he ascended to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to empower us with the power that Jesus used to defeat sickness, with the power that Jesus used to defeat the demonic oppression, and the power that Jesus used to defeat death itself. That's the same Holy Spirit. Here's what you got to understand, church. is like there's no varsity or junior varsity Holy Spirit. There's no lesser... Holy Spirit. Jesus wasn't given a different Holy Spirit than you and I are given. We are given the same Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that raised Lazarus from the tomb, that cleansed lepers, that cast out demons. That same Holy Spirit lives in you. You have the authority, you have the power. We can experience now the reality of God's authority in our life, but we still await the fullness of what promise of that promise when Jesus comes again. that The reality is, is, yes, there will still be heartbreak. Yes, there will still be broken bones. There will still be sickness. There will still be death. But when Jesus comes again, all of that will go away. We're waiting for the fullness of that promise. But the day that Jesus came on the scene, when he was born in Bethlehem, he brought the kingdom of heaven with him. He came to bring the kingdom of heaven with him. We see throughout the book of Acts How God's people laid hands on one another They were healed by the power of Jesus They casted out demons And even today God's people experience the miraculous Maybe you've experienced the miraculous in your life I know I've experienced the miraculous in my life Where I've seen people healed From the laying on of hands Where I've seen the demonic cast out God's power is still alive in us today It was not a thing for the the first century believers. It's not a thing of the past. The Holy Spirit is still working in you and I. In fact, it's why Jesus ascended into heaven so that he could give us a helper, somebody who could be with us 100% of the time. Just like I said last week, God didn't save you from something. He saved you from something, but he saved you into something. This is what he saved you into. He saved you into a life of authority through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing, the fourth thing, I'm going to ask Mary to come up as, as we talk about this fourth thing. is The fourth thing is, I don't need to fear the future. I don't need to fear the future. There's this imagery of a giant beast with horns, and, it, and it's a little frightening. And there's, I think anybody who watched the Left Behind series, uh, they, they, they all ask the question, Am I going to be that person? Am I going to be? You know, it, it maybe instilled a little bit of fear in your life. And maybe when you think about the end times, when you think about when Jesus returns, God's people don't have to fear the future. Sometimes we hear prophecies of, you know, countries invading America, America being destroyed, or, or this is going to happen. and this, You don't have to live in fear of the future. You can be prepared. You can be prayed up, but don't live in fear. You have authority. God has given you authority. The decision between God versus Satan at the end of days, we see it as a boxing match. And, you know, Jesus takes a couple punches. God takes a couple punches to the face. And, you know, he gets back up. No, that's not how it goes. The decision between God versus Satan is not going to the judges. Okay? It was already a knockout. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, it was a fin- that was the final decision. It's over. The battle is won. Jesus has won. It's not a close call. Jesus already won. He promises power and hope and life to everyone who believes in him. And here's the reality is we can spend our entire life living in defense. We can spend our entire life bracing for the next attack of the enemy. And anytime one of our family members gets sick, we go, "Oh, it's the devil coming to get me." Anytime something on the sound goes wrong at church, "Oh, the devil's messing with that sound system." He's coming to get us. Anytime we run out of gas in the middle of the highway, oh, the devil knew that I would run out of gas. He put me here. No, come on. We don't live our lives in defense. The reality is, is when he rose from the grave, Jesus gave you the ball. He said, it's in your court. You have, you're on the offense. And the devil is, he's not praying to God, but he is hoping That the people of God don't realize what they have. That they spend their entire life being distracted by material possessions. He's hoping that the people of God spend their entire life living in fear of what he can do. Oh, I hope they don't see who they are. I hope they don't see what they've been given. Because if they know what they've been given, if they know who they are, it's over. I have nothing left. The devil is hoping you don't figure out who you are. He's hoping you don't know that you have authority. He's hoping you don't know that you're on offense. Because we stand on our side of the court with the ball. We're waiting for Jesus to move the hoop closer or something. (laughs) Jesus is like, go get it. I set you up for success. I gave you all the authority. In fact, I cleared all the defense out of the way. You just go shoot it. We don't always need to armor up and pray for hedges of protection around us. I'm not sure what good a hedge will do. The reality is is we're on the offense. We've been given the ball, and some of you need to hear this today. The devil's afraid of you. Satan is afraid of you. You have an enemy who wants to steal and kill you and destroy you, but he's terrified of you. That's why he wants to do it. He's terrified. He knows what you carry. And he's terrified that one day you might find out. So he's going to keep distracting you with the things of this world, with titles and promotions. He's going to continue to belittle you with shame and make you feel like you're not worthy. Oh, you made a mistake. That's it for you. You don't have any power. You don't have any authority. I know what you did last night. I know what you did last week. I know what you did last month. I know what you did in... Whatever it is, fill in the blank. He's going to belittle you. He's going to shame you because he wants to keep you down there from seeing who you are and what you have. He doesn't want you to walk in the freedom of forgiveness. We walk, we, we spend our lives just holding grudges and holding bitterness against people. Waiting for them to come to us and apologize because I was right. I deserve forgiveness. I deserve justice. I deserve for them to pay and they, them to experience the pain that they caused me. When you live like that, many of you may have heard this. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You can't live your life waiting for somebody else to apologize. And they may never apologize to you. We don't have time. We don't have, We we, we don't have the ability to spend our entire life living in a grudge and in in unforgiveness when we were forgiveness. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He forgave us when we didn't deserve it. And we're supposed to do the same thing. And that will lead you into a life of freedom. That will lead you into a life of fullness. And you can approach the throne room of heaven with confidence, knowing that I don't have anything the devil can hold on me. He tries to give me this shame. I'm going to just dish it right back. He, he, He can't give it to me. I believe this morning God wants to set some of you free from shame. He wants to set some of you free from bitterness. He wants to set some of you free from the desires of the things of this world. Maybe you find yourself caught in addiction. Maybe you're watching online and you find yourself in addiction, bound to the things of this world. I'm going to invite everybody to stand up, and we're going to pray together. And I'm going to ask that our prayer teams would come forward, Kurt and Jethro and, and the darts. Would you come forward to the front here? Here's what I want to do is I'm going to pray. Uh, I want to pray for you this morning, but I, I just want to know who I'm praying for. And if you would like further prayer, please come see uh, one of these amazing people that we have on the stage, in front of the stage. They want to pray for you. They want to help walk with you. But let's pray together first and foremost. Let's all bow our heads, close our eyes. Jesus, we thank you that we have authority. God, that the future looks brighter than our past. The best is yet to come. God's not done with you. He's not finished with you. You're not damaged goods. You're not broken. He wants to use you. So, Father, we give you our shame We give you our unforgiveness. We surrender it. God, we give you our addictions, those things that are holding us back from walking in freedom. The desires of our flesh, we don't want them anymore, Jesus. If I'm speaking to you this morning and you say, yes, I I have shame, I have unforgiveness, or I have have something that's keeping me back, would you just raise your hand right now? All heads bowed, eyes closed. Just raise your hand if that's you. I want to pray for you. Keep your hands up. Thank you, Jesus. You can put your hands down. Father, right now, I just pray for those who raise their hands in the room. God, the weight of sin is so heavy. And you say, Jesus, come to me if you're weary because I have a light burden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you want to experience the peace and the freedom that comes by surrendering 100% to Jesus, then just ask Him right now, Jesus, give me a fresh start. Just say it with your mouth. Jesus, give me a fresh start. Make me new. Cleanse me. God, I pray for freedom and breakthrough in this room from all those who are bound. They are no longer bound in Jesus' name. They are new creations. We declare it, and we know it in your word that it's true. God, thank you so much for what you've done for us. We love you. We lift you up. And the church said, amen. Amen Amen again. If you need prayer, please see one of these people in front. They're going to hang up out here for just a couple minutes, and uh, come ask for prayer if you need prayer. God bless you. We'll see you next week.